Exodus chapter 2 as we continue on in our series that we began last week. Well, while the kids are heading out and while uh, many of you are finding your spot in your Bible and uh, finding Exodus 2, let's do some, let's do some review, class. So, come on, kids. Let's, uh, figure, let's remember what we talked about last week. Exodus. Exodus. Who wrote the book of Exodus? Who? Moses. Very good. I heard, I heard colon. You're special. All right. Um, great. The b- book of uh, Exodus was primarily written by uh, Moses and very critical for our understanding and interpretation of the book of Exodus and of rightly applying it to ourselves Who is the primary original audience of the book of Exodus? The Israelites, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, or the Israelites who, the second generation Israelites? Dos, dos, second generation is who this is uh, being uh, directed to. That is important to help us understand where we're going in our series, in our time. I'm going to do something a little bit different before we get to reading God's Word, I want to bring home some things I said last week and press them in a little bit further. I want to pause and drive home an idea that I introduced and, and, and drive into that idea of the original audience facing the promised land. That they are being called by God and by Moses in the, the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to remember what the Lord has done for them. To remember God's faithfulness and also their failings and mistakes for the past, and communicating to them that it is now time for the take up what God has promised to them. That the people of Israel are in the plains of Moab, and they are awaiting entry into the promised land, where they await a very large uh, groups of people. They are to do war and to win for themselves the promised land. Now we have often, in Christian literature, used the metaphor of the wilderness wanderings and the taking of the promised land as a promised land connecting to heaven. And that is indeed actually quite true. Now, we don't usually tend to think of us taking heaven, but if we actually understand the biblical theology and understand the picture that the scriptures give us, which is this, is that heaven is not something that is merely up there, but when Jesus said heaven's going to come, he said it's going to come down, heaven will come down to earth. In the Lord's Prayer, we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, for God's kingdom to come, it means for heaven and all God's justice and rule and righteousness to reign here. And so this describes what it means for us to be pursuing a promised land. It means we are being about uh, the, the, uh, the, the advance of God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel, through evangelism and discipleship, and it's through the manifestation of the kingdom As the gospel takes hold in our life, God's kingdom becomes evident so that it changes the way you work. And it changes the way you live your life. It changes how you spend your money. And when Christians, when that happens to Christians, whole systems and whole cities and whole countries change. It's God's invisible kingdom, his spiritual kingdom being made manifest in a physical, visible way where we live and work and play. And so the promised land, drive this home even further, are those places where we bring the gospel to bear inside of us. Where do you need to see the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Jesus, take hold in your heart and your life? 
Where is evil doing battle? And you need to be about being on mission to seeking God's glory in your life and living in obedience to the king. You need to be about bringing the gospel to the bear to the various places in this earth. To defeat the systems of evil in this world to bring God's invisible kingdom and make it visible. The promised land in spiritual language would be the kingdom of God taking hold both in your heart and in your life and in all the areas, the places around you. And so the question that I'm bringing to you in this series and that I'm challenging you with is what is your promised land? In other words, where are those places in your heart and your home and your neighborhood and your workplace and in your city and in this world where God has said, I have given you the calling and the mission to take that place by the means of the gospel of Jesus Christ to take that place to the glory of my name. To bring heaven down to earth here through the witness of the gospel, through the, the way you work and live and play and spend your money. So whether that's taking on evangelism through radical hospitality. Radical hospitality is when you have people who are not like you into your home. And it means, that there's, it means your life gets uncomfortable. It means involving yourself in your kid's sports teams. Not simply so that your kid can succeed, but involving yourself in your kid's sports teams so that you might engage with those who might not know Jesus, so that you might invite one family on your kid's sports team and get to know them and have them over for dinner. It means dedicating so much of your time to pray for the workers of the harvest. It means giving of your resources because I want to see the kingdom advance in a particular way, on a particular campus, or in a particular country. And this is true, not simply for us as individuals. We individualize too many of the things in scriptures, but this is also a question for us as a corporate church. King's Chapel, what is it, where is it that the Lord is calling us to rightly apply the gospel so that we look more like people who love Jesus and submit our lives to the king? And, in, and where are we as a church being called to take with compassion and goodness and grace the good news of Jesus Christ into our community, into our city? To take the gospel to the nations. What is that? Have we grown weary in doing good? Have we settled on what we have done? Now, here's let me ask. I asked this question to my community group this past week. The question I just asked you. What is the promised land for you? Where has the Lord, by his spirit, been convicting you and, and speaking to your conscience where you are supposed to direct in, in, in your energies and your focus and your time and your resources? Where is that? You know the answer I got in my community group? Crickets, for the most part, which is the lamest of answers. No one really wanted to answer. Now, to be fair, I kind of jumped them with the question, but Andy and I were actually discussing the silence in the midst of our time this together this week. And Andy made a fabulous pastoral point that I want to share with you, which is this. That we don't even want to answer that question because we are afraid to name the places that we sense the Lord might be calling us into. Because that indeed would be the first step of taking hold of the mission that God has called us to. And if I name it and declare it and make it publicly known that the Lord might be calling me to share the gospel with this person or to engage with that neighbor or to serve someone in my church in this way or to dive even more deeply to, into love and forgiveness of my spouse or to take hold and say, I am not no longer going to give over to the Satan and to the evil one in that area of my life, that I'm going to engage with great passion and energy for mission 
for the promised, take over the promised land for the glory of God. And the first, time, first thing that makes us kind of commit to that is naming it and saying that's where God's calling me to go. Now look at me, King Chapel. You are such a faithful people. If there is a missional faithfulness dance-off in our community, I will take your dance skills more than anybody else. But I, I want to say you're so faithful. Let me also say this. The Lord wants more for you, and he wants more for us. The Lord calls us, and he stretches us in the call to mission to engage in our lives, in our homes, in our church, in our community. And he calls you always and evermore into greater and greater causes for the glory of his name and for your greater joy. And so, in order to get to the place where we would be willing to listen to the conviction and call of the Holy Spirit and begin to name and label the places where God has said, I want you there, then we need to grow in faith. We need to grow in faith. In Hebrews 11, in the hall of faith, there are two times in uh, in which there are two places in Hebrews 11, talking about the great... Uh, people of faith in the scriptures, it mentions two places in chapter 2 of Exodus. Two folks are mentioned. One are Moses' parents. In Hebrews 11 verse 23, it says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The call of God requires courage. That you would set aside the fear of man and take up the fear of God and you would live a life of courage and boldness. And guess what? That is hard. And so we need the faith that fashioned and formed their courage. And then we also see that Moses gave up the riches of Egypt to identify with God's people because he considered the kingdom of God better than the things of the earth. And so it says this in Hebrews 11, verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The call of God requires courage. It also requires sacrifice. I'm saying, I will give up the riches of this world in order to take part in sacrifice to be a part of the story of God's people and God's redemptive work in this world. And so if you're going to do that, when you're already faithfully giving to your church and already giving to missionaries, and God comes to you and says, hey, sacrifice more. Give more. What are you going to need? For the Lord to fashion and shape within you a greater faith that relies upon him. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the call of God in raising up and in calling Israel's deliverer and leader. We're going to look at this in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And in the story of God's call upon Moses, the people of Israel are being given the motivation of divine truths that are meant to bolster their faith so that they move forward into ever greater steps of risk and sacrifice for the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom. And so, for us as New Testament Christians, we also are going to see in Moses the one who is the foreshadowing of the greater deliverer, Jesus. And as his people, and in our his story, our faith is bolstered so that we too would be willing to take greater steps of courage and sacrifice for the glory of his name, the furtherance of his kingdom, and for our joy. Exodus chapter 2, ends, that ends the introduction for this morning. 
Let's get our motivation and have our faith shaped and formed as we look at God's word. Exodus 2 verses 1 through 22 should be on the screen for you as I read out loud. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife as a Levite, a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. By the way, that's a weird statement. They didn't try to keep him alive simply because he was a good-looking kid. The, the, the words there actually echo Genesis 1, where it uses the word good. He was a tov child, a beautiful child. In other words, they saw that he, had, he bore the image of God. He was worth giving, risking their lives for. So they saw that he was a fine child, and so she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister, that would be Miriam most likely, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew old, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the, to the man of the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, or Jethro, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This ends the reading of God's words. Praise be to the Lord. As I said two weeks ago, we are going to look at the earth, that for the next two weeks we're going to be looking at the raising up and calling of, God's, of Israel's deliverer and leader, Moses. And the story in which God calls upon Moses and raises him up, it's meant to bolster our faith. Actually, going to look at four truths over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at the first two this morning. What would convince you to follow the call of God or even to be willing to hear the call of God and name it in your life? And to, seek the, and to lay down the riches of earth in order to seek the riches of heaven, the glory of God. Here's the big idea this morning. That God in Moses in writing this is seeking to increase Israel's faith and our faith by revealing to us 
God's hidden providence in two ways. God's hidden providence. You know, the name of God, God is not acting in the whole first two chapters of Exodus until we get to the last couple verses of chapter 2 where it says that God saw and remembered and heard. But I want you to see this morning to encourage you to be willing to take up the call of God with courage and sacrifice to develop your faith. I want you to see God's hidden providence to preserve his people. To preserve his people. We see this in Exodus chapter 2, 1 through 10. Now you might recall that at the end of chapter 1, we are left with a cliffhanger, right? God has provided over and over again, but we see that Pharaoh's genocidal activity has gone to the fullest lengths in which he has now declared that anybody who sees a Hebrew boy can simply take that child and pitch him into the Nile and putting them to death. But if you read God's response in the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 2, you would be struck by the fact that God is never mentioned, but he appears to be pulling the strings silently behind all sorts of small providences. The biggest events in history sometimes seem to turn on the smallest hinges. You know, it was a, a coincidence of history in which Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was the king of Prussia and the last German emperor, he ruled Germany from 1888 to 1918. He was ambitious and volatile and difficult to deal with. And in many ways, most many historians believe that his overly aggressive and overreactionary policies is what led to World War I, a seemingly unavoidable or avoidable war. But back in 1889, something happened that could have turned the tide of history. You see, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show had come to Berlin, and the Berliners were all about it, including Kaiser Wilhelm. And at one point in the show, as was custom, little Annie Oakley would do all sorts of trips with her, tricks with her Colt 45, including one where she would ask the crowd if someone would come up and put a, a lit cigar in their mouth, and she would shoot the, the ashes off the edge of the cigar. And so she would seek to see if there was a volunteer, and usually there would just be a chuckle, a nervous chuckle, and no one would volunteer, and then her husband would come out and have to do it, and put the cigar in his mouth, and she would shoot the ashes off the cigar. But Kaiser Wilhelm, being the king and being a bold and brash man, sauntered his way up on stage and said, I will do it. And one particular historian, looking back and, quote, and, and thinking back on this, and after having talked to Annie Oakley, she said, I can't, she said she couldn't back out now, but that she began to sweat profusely and to regret all the whiskey she had had the night before because her hands were now shaky. And she raised her Colt 45 and took aim and blew away the ashes from Wilhelm's cigar. Now, the historian went on to wonder this, this thought, how the world might have been different if she had drank in just a little more whiskey <laughs> with a little more unsteadiness and a shot that took out Wilhelm. In fact, many years later, after World War I had begun, Annie Oakley wrote back to Wilhelm and said, asking if she could have a chance at a second shot. <laughs> the biggest events in history sometimes seem to turn on tiny, small hinges. And so it is in Exodus chapter 2. If you read through chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, there's all these little small providences. He, the boat, little boat made of reeds somehow floated with a child in it. The princess just so happened to bathe at that moment at that beach. Miriam just so happens to see this. The baby just so happens to be crying. What seems to alert the princess of what's going, that there's a 
little boat over in the corner of the reeds. It just so happens that this, this particular princess of Egypt is compassionate towards the Hebrews. Do you see how your God controls all things? He is the one who is controlling the strings, even the heartstrings of Egyptian princesses from behind the scenes. And even so, God so controls all of history with his sovereign providential plan that he can even go about having an ironic sense of humor in the midst of it. You see, this story had to have left the original audience snickering for just a little bit. You remember the decree of Pharaoh, the abortive decree that to eliminate all the Hebrew males, and but who is it that frustrates Pharaoh's plans? In this case, it's his very own teenage daughter. Many of you have had teenage daughters frustrate you. <laughs> and so you say, amen, that God might even use a frustrating teenage daughter to bring about God's, God's plan. You see, Moses it's laughable. Moses, the one who was supposed to be taken out, is now under the care and is a ward of the state of Egypt. The very irony of ironies, the very person who would end up being Pharaoh's downfall and Israel's deliverer is now brought up down the hall from Pharaoh. And there is the poetic beauty still, right, of who will nurse Moses? His own mother. His own mother. And not only that, she's going to be on the dole of Pharaoh. She's going to get paid to nurse her own child, to raise him up, to whisper in his ear the stories and the faithfulness and the promises of God. And when you meet humor in the Bible, though you have to also understand this, when God gives us humor and irony in the Bible, a serious point is usually being made. That you see there is a dark side to God's humor, and the object of God's joke here is Pharaoh. The hard-hearted, hate-mongering crusher of Israel. And this story, by the means of humor and irony, is showing that defeating the kings of this world is merely kid stuff for the God of Israel. And so Moses is looking at Israel and saying, you're scared of the kings of Canaan? Pharaoh's the greatest emperor in all of, of human history at this point. And Pharaoh's going, God had a laugh. Pharaoh is the butt of God's joke. God's plan is not simply to remove evil. God wants to embarrass it. God wants to pants evil and laugh at it. This is what God wants to do. And this is why God says in Psalm chapter 2 verse 4, the psalmist says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And not only that, but in using these small things and preserving the deliverer of Israel, we are tapping into one of the great themes, redemptive themes in all of Scripture. There is a theme that God is going to repeat over and over and over again in the scriptures. And here's the theme, that you are to give careful attention when you see an extraordinary birth and watch carefully when you see an extraordinary birth for God's extraordinary deliverance. Think about God is going to repeat this over and over again. The extraordinary birth is the birth of Moses, right? It's a miracle. He shouldn't survive birth. He should be taken out by malicious midwives doing the bidding of Pharaoh. He shouldn't survive three months as the searches of soldiers through the houses of Hebrew homes looking for baby boys. He shouldn't survive a little basket. But instead, what we see here is that he is, has an extraordinary deliverance. You see, actually, Moses is the writer of this, and he looks back at his own life. He is hearkening his own deliverance in a little basket back to one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. You see, the word for basket here is quite interesting. Moses could have chosen to use the word sa'al, which means wicker, 
which is what it was. Or he could have chosen to use the word kalev, which means woven. Or he could have chosen to use the word tele, which means twisted. All of these words are used for various baskets in the Hebrew language. But instead, Moses used the word, the same word he used when he wrote the book of Genesis chapter 6 through 9, when he talked about this thing called the ark. That God would deliver his people from the water, out of the water, and so here it is in a miniature arch, ark, Moses is delivered by God. And what you're going to connect here is God's deliverance for little ones who would actually bring about his redemptive work in this world. And guess what? It shouldn't surprise you if you know the story of Genesis. Because at the very beginning of the book of the, of the Bible, in Genesis 3 verse 15, right after man has fallen, God comes to Adam and Eve and he looks at Adam and he curses the ground. He said life is going to be difficult, but then he gives this good news. And his good news is that Adam doesn't have to reverse the curse. But he says this, from the seed of a woman will come a child. And the evil one will strike his heel, but he will crush his head. And so what do we see in the pattern of God's redemptive work? Abraham and Isaac have a miraculous, extraordinary child into their 90s in the early 100s. He says that he has an extraordinary birth when they're old and ancient, when her womb is as good as dead. We see it in other places in the book of Genesis. We see it in other parts of the story of Israel in Judges chapter 13. Samson, his mother is described as sterile. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah, her womb is closed and God opens it so that he might, Samuel might be the anointer of the Lord's deliverer. We see it in Matthew chapter 2, right? The apex of God's redemptive work, we see right as, about, as Jesus is about to come onto the scene, we see two extraordinary births. One is John the Baptist, whose mother was barren, and then a virgin gives birth. When a Levite writes about another malignant king named Herod and another adopted parent named Joseph, and Jesus faced the exact same things that Moses faces, doesn't he? A tyrannical king who ordered that all the baby boys be killed. And yet he is extraordinarily delivered. We saw it a couple weeks ago in the deliverance of the Magi. That they come by way and they're supposed to actually give up where Jesus is, the supposed king of Israel, to Herod. And instead they hear in a dream that they go back to their homeland through a different direction. And Joseph gets a dream as well. And of all places, where is Joseph supposed to take the child? Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. In other words, just as God saved Moses to save his people, so God saves baby Jesus to save his people. You see, God is seeking to increase our faith by revealing to us his hidden, in, his hidden providence in preserving his Redeemer. Against all odds, and he does that for his people now as well. God works behind the scenes in silent and hidden ways. A couple years ago, there was a woman named Katherine Johnson who finally began to get the due she deserved as an iconic American historical figure. Thanks to the book and the movie called Hidden Figures, along with Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson, it tells a story of three African-American women who studied and worked in the Langley Research Center. And they worked in segregated areas, and they had segregated bathrooms. They even worked on segregated computers that read, for colors only. And they were not referring to the color of the screen. 
But because of Mrs. Johnson, Alan Shepard was the first human shot up into outer space and able to come back. She had actually figured out through her math and using of her skills and her brain exactly, pinpointing exactly where on earth he would land. Because of her, John Glenn was the first human to orbit the earth because she had calculated every single detail. Because of her, Apollo 11 landed on the moon and in fact, Apollo 13 was able to make it back to earth. She was an amazing worker, but she did it all behind the scenes and her story is just now being known, but she was a quiet, hidden one working behind the scenes. That's the premise of the book, that there is a genius who in the eyes of the world is infinitesimally small, and yet God is moving and working. And we saw a genius in our space program who could take calculating the smallest movement of planet Earth and the resistance of the heat shield on returning vehicles in order to save lives and to further the space program. And so we see here as well, Moses is talking about the same thing. That here in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, God appears but only in the hidden and behind-the-scene ways. You see, Moses, in chapters 1 and 2, only ever refers to God using the word Elohim, which is the general word for God. It's like, like little g gods. Even though the next chapter, in chapter 3, we're going to see that God introduces himself as Yahweh. Now you say, that's not that odd, that he doesn't use the word Yahweh in chapter 1 and 2 if he doesn't introduce it until chapter 3. But in the book of Genesis, Moses has already been using the, the word Yahweh. In fact, he does so 137 times. And what is, in other words, what is he saying? That God is hidden. And God is moving and working. Moses is showing that there is an impossible source of control who is a genius at bringing about his plans and nothing can stop his redemptive work in the world. The writer of the book, Hidden Figures, has this quote by John Glenn just before he enters the spaceship. He said, the rocket, he says, when they were asking him if he was okay to get in and get going, and he said, get the girl to check the numbers. And if she says the numbers are good then I'm ready to go. And so let me ask you this. Is God calling you to something? You know how crazy our astronaut program was? We didn't even hardly know what we were doing and we're like, hey, would you get on this like rocket and we're gonna shoot you into outer space? God is asking you to do something might be quite like that. To take risks, to sacrifice, and what he is saying is, go check the numbers. There's a genius who is working out all the plans behind, behind all that he has asked you to do. So would you take up courage? Could you grow in faith that God is holding on to every little detail of your life, even when you can't necessarily see him moving and working? The second thing I want you to look at, to grow your faith so that you might have more courage and give up the riches of earth to sacrifice more, is that you would see God's hidden providence in preparing the Redeemer God's hidden promise, providence to prepare. Now, if you were to take a step back and look at this, and re I read these two accounts together, verses 1 through 10 and then 11 through 22, and it seems that verses 11 and 2 almost seem to negate all the good that's going on in verses 1 through 10. We have this lovely story in which there's a hearkening of, yay, a redeemer is coming. And then what happens in verse 11? The redeemer utterly and royally screws up. Suddenly, between 10 and 11, we jump 40 years, and Moses is killing somebody. We go from baby Moses crying to, ba to big Moses killing people. 
This is no bueno. H.O. Ellison, who's a commentator, said this. During the long years that followed, it seemed as if that all of Moses' providential training had been for nothing. Because what happens in verses 11 22? He kills somebody, he makes a giant mistake, and he has to flee Egypt. And now where do we find Moses for the rest of the chapter? Wandering around the desert with sheep. In chapter 3, verse 1, we see that Moses is a shepherd in Sinai. And Ellison goes on to say that here it is so confusing that here it is that Moses has had this great providential luck that he has been raised and prepared to be a leader by taking on the great organizational courses of the leadership courses of the sons of Pharaoh, those who would rule the greatest empire in the world. He has this great educational training and it all seems like it is wasted because now he's doing nothing but following sheep around the deserts. And not only that, 40 years, 40 years, 40 years Moses will be in the wilderness in Midian. Here is Moses, marvelously spared, superbly educated in all the learning of Egypt, all so he can take care of sheep in a desert. This is hardly the career arc that Moses thought his life was probably going to go, right? Goes from being a prince of Egypt to being a shepherd in a dry land. It is actually a detail in Genesis where Joseph is advising his family that would show us how badly Moses would have thought of this kind of new occupation of his. Because Joseph says to his own brothers in Genesis chapter 46 that if you want the Egyptians to leave you alone, say that you are shepherds because they detest shepherds. So what does the prince of Egypt get? He becomes a shepherd. And Moses has to be looking at his life and saying, how in the world did I end up in Midian? And 40 years you're making me stay here, God? 40 years? 40 years in the wilderness. One pastor said that he called these the back 40 years of Moses' life. Doesn't God's plan seem to be utterly foolish and silly? What a waste. All this education, all this redemptive work, only to send him out to the wilderness. You see, God, see the hidden God has hidden ways, and he most often uses and hides his ways behind things that appear to be foolishness to us. And yet, what God does in the wilderness, the wilderness days of your life, the most mundane seasons of your life, is he is preparing you for something great. Why does God have me here, Moses has to ask? Why is this my mission? And yet, what do we see in the providence of God? How does God use his time in the wilderness? Well, for one, we see the shaping of, character, of Moses' character. Moses goes from a man who kills people, that his anger and his temper is so great that he would slaughter somebody, that he then goes on to becoming, as numbers will describe him, as the most meek and gentle and humble man on the earth. How does somebody go from an arrogant, abusive leadership style to being a quiet and humble leader? 40 years in the wilderness will teach you how to do that. 40 years of humiliation, 40 years wondering what God is doing with his life, 40 years in the wilderness. You see, God is patiently shaping his servant Moses for the task that he has for himself. You see, some of you are wondering why in the world it is that God has you where you're at. Perhaps, perhaps the mundaneness of your life, God is trying to prepare you for something in the future. God is also practically not just shaping Moses' character, he's practically preparing Moses because as we see in the early parts of chapter 3 of Exodus that the place where Moses is herding these sheep around is an area called Sinai and in the wilderness of Sinai. And so what do we see here is this convergence 
of God's education with Moses. What will be Moses' task as the deliverer and leader of Israel? He's going to have to be essentially a functioning as a king and a judge and a great organizational leader. That training he got in Egypt. But he's also going to have to be somebody who knows his way around the wilderness. And somebody who actually knows how to care for people. Like sheep. Who are difficult to deal with. And so what do we see? Moses is prepared in very practical and specific ways for the task ahead of him. Now, your name is not Moses. But God too is at work in the mundane details of your life. You see, the big idea that we're looking at is God is seeking and Moses is seeking to increase our faith by revealing to us his hidden providence in preparing us for our mission or perhaps by preparing you in the mission he has for you right now, no matter how small it appears. For some of you, the application would be this. Be content with the mission God has given you today. Because for you, for you the difficulty is not, well, there's some great and grand thing that God is calling me into that's scary and I'm going to take on giants. No, for you, the difficult thing is my life is seems so small and so mundane. And it involves things like forgiving my spouse over and over again. And trying to learn how to be gentle with my children And how how to give up my rights when I long to pursue a career and yet I'm doing these small, seemingly stupid things on the floor on a Tuesday morning. The mundane places. And yet God is calling you as as a part of the mission to stay there. To go further in and further up. To give more of yourself. To sacrifice yourself for what God has for you now. No matter how small it seems. Perhaps you're in the back 40 in a living situation in which you wish you weren't, in which your work situation seems like your skills are not used in the way you would like them to be used. But don't get impatient with God's timetable. God does his best work in the wilderness, in seasons of suffering or even worse, boredom. The dog days of Christianity, when we're tired and worn out and we do the same things over and over and over again, But God is moving and working there. For others of you, the application is this. That you might look back in your life and see God's providential hand in preparing you for what he has for you next. That he may be calling you into something difficult that you look at and you go, that is beyond me. Well, guess what? God never calls you to something he is not willing to also prepare you for. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to feel equipped. And it doesn't mean essentially you're going to feel like you're prepared. But he's going to look and says, I've been doing a work in your life to get you ready for this. And there's no mistake when I call you into this. And so you take hold of the fact that you look back at your life and you're like, man, I've been doing really small things. And now suddenly you're asking me to do this big thing. And God says, yeah, I've been preparing you through the small things. But God is doing more here in the wilderness than simply preparing Moses. But he's doing something in Moses in his connection and relationship with the people of Israel. And this is important for us to see as well. If we're going to have the courage and sacrifice and trust our Lord in his leading. Because Moses is learning not just the practicalities of leadership. But he's learning the most important thing which is this. He's learning that he, I must identify with the people of Israel. That he is called And he experiences what they experience. And he hurts the way they hurt. And he is writing the second generation for Israel when they have done what for 40 years? Wandered in the wilderness. And God's going to call Moses and say, Moses, 
You wandered in the wilderness, and now I'm calling you to something bigger and greater. And what will be Moses' response? Eerily similar to the people of Israel. God, I don't speak well. I'm scared. Send me Aaron. Send anything. Send anyone. Not me. Yet God says, I prepared you in the wilderness. And so Moses said, the second generation Israel, I have prepared you. You see, Moses knows their sorrows. It actually says this, that it's in a weird place. Moses' connection between him himself and the people of Israel. But it says in, in verse 22, it says, She gave birth, Zipporah, Moses' wife, gave birth to a son, and she called his name Gershom, which means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. In other words, Moses can empathize with his people's feelings of being enslaved, of being a people without a home. He connects to their weakness and their wounds and their hurts and their sorrows. Moses is a man who grew up in the wealth and riches of Egypt. How is he supposed to connect with the people who have been enslaved for 400 years? God says, I'm going to send you to the wilderness for 40. And you get low. And you have no home. And you wander around. And how is Moses going to connect a people of Israel when God is asking them to do something hard and difficult after they've been wandering around like chickens with their head cut off for 40 years. God says, look at your leader. I sent him wandering in the wilderness and then I called him to something great and big and I showed up for him. And so God is calling Israel, but God is also calling us in this because it wasn't simply just Moses that went to identify and connect himself with Israel as it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that he that Moses identifies with the people of Israel but so too does our deliverer it says this in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 and 17 for he Jesus who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source and what is that source the source is that why that is why he is not ashamed to call them his brothers in verse 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In other words, Jesus, as the true and better Moses, has to actually wander this earth. And he does so, so that he can be a faithful and merciful high priest. So that he can understand the difficulties of the things that he has called you into. Have you ever thought about this with Jesus' life? Jesus leaves the riches of heaven in order to take on the poverty of earth. Because he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He identifies with us. And in fact, Jesus walks through so much of what, what we walk through. That he comes to this earth and he wanders the earth in utter obscurity for 30 years. Isn't it so bizarre? 30 years. The, the Son of God comes to earth and we pretty much hear nothing of him for 30 years. And then he lives three years of public ministry and he spends most of it how? Homeless. Foxes have holes. He has no place to lay his head. He's used to wilderness wandering. He's used to understand what it is to be a people who live in this world and know that we have a home somewhere else. And it goes even further. He's used to walking and engaging with temptation and the difficult things to take up the mission in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1, there's this great account where Jesus wanders, is led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness for 40 days. And it says this, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, and he quotes, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now this is not a coincidence. You see, there is a parallel here. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is written by Moses. To whom? Second generation Israel. 
And Moses, who writes in the wilderness to the people of Israel who are also in the wilderness during their time of testing, it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years into the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you should keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Israel is led by Jesus, by the, by the Spirit into the wilderness. So Jesus is led in the Spirit by the wilderness, into the wilderness. Forty years, Israel is wanders in the wilderness. Forty days, Jesus wanders in the wilderness. Humbling and testing of Israel, Jesus' greatest temptation is here. Other than for the garden. Jesus is tested and tempted and tried. Israel is hunger, hungry in the wilderness and Jesus is hungry and he fasts 40 days. Why does Jesus wander in the wilderness? Just to be a great example? Sure, that's a nice example. How the way he fights temptation by the word of God alone, that's a great example. But Jesus is very consciously identifying himself like Moses did. Jesus is identifying himself with God's people, saying, I am with you and I am one of you. And I will walk where you walk and I will walk the wilderness road in the seasons and places of temptation. But you see, Jesus isn't merely identifying with us. He's actually succeeding where we fail. For 40 days, he goes without food, and the tempter comes and tempts him to lead him into sin. And you know what the great temptation of the devil is? Jesus, don't take up a cross. Declare yourself king without a cross. In other words, what is Satan's temptation? Lay down the mission the Father has given you. And so here's how God prepares you. For those of you that are scared to take up the mission, to take up your cross and follow him, he says, listen, you will never be able to take up your cross and follow me until you've seen that I have borne the cross on your behalf. That you're taking up the cross for me, that does not come first until you see that I identify with you And I have taken on the mission that the Father gave me and I have perfectly fulfilled it so that you might be in the kingdom of God and that your success and the endeavor that I'm giving you does not determine your acceptance in my sight. Oh yes, I want you to take up the cross and take up the mission and follow me. But understand this, you will not do so until you see that I have paved the way, that I have walked through death, that I have completed my mission so that you might be mine. So Jesus is saying, you know how I prepare you? I prepare you through the mundane. But even more so, I've prepared you by entering this world, by succeeding in all the places that you're scared to go because you're afraid of failing. That in the passing the test and persevering even in sorrow and in loneliness and pressing on in weakness. And so Jesus says, take up the call I have given you for I go with you and I go before you. I will not ask you to go someplace in mission that I have not already gone before you and been successful. I know your weakness. I know your fear. Follow me. Follow me. So if you're going to be a person who's courageous and sacrificial, that could you get specific this week? Could you name it and claim it in the best sense of the word? Name and claim the cross and the mission that God has given you. Tell other people about it. It gets really risky when you start voicing these things. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to take up faith, though. 
Faith in God's providence that is often hidden, but that is preserving you and preparing you. And you have to pray. Could you pray? Here's a great prayer. It'll be on the screen, and this is how we'll close. John Wesley prayed a great prayer of faith. You'll never have a peace about the mission that God has given you. And frankly, you'll never experience great joy in the mission until you have faith. You faithfully deliver your life over to God and say, I am yours. Give me the task that you've given me, that you've decided for me. Here's what John Wesley says. And let's pray this. I'll pray it out loud and you pray it in your own heart of hearts. I am no longer my own, but I am yours. Put to me what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and your disposal. And now, glorious and blessed Father, Son and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.